mindfulness. Ever heard of it? If you haven't, I'd be very surprised because mindfulness is having a moment right now. From ohms to mantras, meditations to acts of kindness, mindfulness practices come in many forms. And in a world overrun with worry and strife, many people are turning to these strategies to minimize their stress, anxiety, even depression. But breathing techniques, meditations, positive vibes, do they actually work? Take a deep focusing breath because the research points overwhelmingly to yes. I'm Jacob Carroza, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. First, let's focus on what mindfulness is. Our Chris Bournet sits down with Dr. Mariana Klatt, director of the Ohio State University College of Medicine's Center for Integrative Medicine. She researches ways to develop feasible, cost-effective measures to reduce the risk of stress-related chronic illness for adults and children. Together, they discuss mindfulness, how you can practice it, and some of the amazing things she's seen in her research. Well, Marianna, thanks for taking the time to do this. It's great to speak with you. So first off, how do you define the term mindfulness? What does the concept mean to you? Well, thank you for the invitation, Chris, to do this podcast. What mindfulness means not only to me, but I think to the general culture is to be in your life moment by moment, even when it's hard. It's easy to be there for the moments of our lives when they're great, celebrations, joyfulness. It's when the moments of our lives get difficult that I find the ability to be aware and to be present most beneficial because then you're not destroyed by the moment. You're able to be there and able to navigate those difficult times more easily. The way that we react to things is what sculpts our reality. We have the option when something happens to us to just react in the moment and be very you know, emotional and frustrated by something, which is natural. That's why it's so important to be able to respond in a slow, mindful manner intentionally rather than just to emotionally react to a situation. And can you kind of talk about how mindfulness practices like yoga and listening to relaxing music, how that can help lower your stress levels and kind of help you center yourself? Sure. So I have the research to back up that both yoga, relaxing music, and mindfulness does help people relax and center themselves. Why it does that? They don't know truly what the mechanism of action is for each of those different things. But I think from a research standpoint, what it helps people do is center in their bodies. So yoga through movement, becoming aware of how our bodies feel with each movement is important. Mindfulness, the reframing of how we want to respond to the situations in our life. And then relaxing music. The music part of our brain has such an ability to allow us to relax our physiology, to allow the parasympathetic nervous system, 
the part of our autonomic nervous system that is the rest and digest to kick in. So what are maybe some things that kind of keep people from being mindful? What are some maybe roadblocks that can get in the way of of practicing mindfulness on a day-to-day basis? Ironically, it's our minds because our minds, our brains, the job of our brains is to think. But the problem is so much of our thinking is occupied with either past events or future events. And so the present gets squeezed out. And so what interferes is the cognition of ruminating over things that already happened. Oh, I wish I had answered that email differently. Oh, that conversation, you know, he he was terrible. Or I have to do this, that, and this. And just the continuous lists and thinking about what we need to do. And so the present disappears. But the problem is we don't want to get to the end of our lives and have missed our lives. But that's a real possibility if we always let the past and the future interfere with the present moment. So can you also kind of talk about your work with construction workers and how mindfulness practices like yoga can help them prevent injuries and prevent accidents? It was construction workers that inspired my work with healthcare professionals. It was in 2011, and I looked out my window and I saw the construction workers that were building the James, the our cancer hospital here at Ohio State. They were doing yoga and meditation because their employer, the construction company, required them to do so. They want them to go home with 10 fingers and toes. They want them to be focused on their work. When I'm looking out the window, I'm thinking, well, yes, those construction workers are doing very important work. That's important that they're safe and there and aware. But inside the hospital, it's also important that the healthcare professionals are there so that they can provide the patient care that we want them to. And so it was at that moment I thought, it's not just outside the hospital, we need to be doing this. And that's the point at which I moved inside the hospital and did a study with a randomized control trial with 34 nurses in the surgical intensive care unit. And in that one, we got a 40% reduction in salivary alpha amylase, which is a marker of sympathetic nervous system activation. So it's like the stress response went down in those nurses. The stress was never going to change. It was the way they responded that changed. And it was a it was a huge success. So we were very thrilled with that. Can you talk about your work with healthcare professionals and how practicing mindfulness kind of helps them re- reduce their stress levels? Absolutely. So the biggest group that I have worked with over the last 15 years has been healthcare professionals. We get between a 21 to 28% reduction in burnout from week one to week eight of the mindfulness program called Mindfulness in Motion, which is a combination of mindfulness, community building, yoga, and relaxing music. The reason that's so important is because it impacts patient care, and we wanna deliver the best patient care possible. So 
if the healthcare professional is relaxed, is centered, is there, they're going to be way better at providing the quality care that we want to deliver at Ohio State. Can you also talk about your work with school children and how working with them kind of helps them concentrate and focus more in class? Sure. Several years ago, we got a grant, a community-based grant, that we compared second grade classrooms in an inner city school in South Columbus. The kids that were doing the mindfulness program for eight weeks with their teacher to the other second grade classroom, and then we switched. We were not looking for this, but we got significant differences in hyperactivity, attention, ability to concentrate. And then those results actually were sustained for three months past that. And the teachers loved it because just like with healthcare professionals, when the little kids were more relaxed and centered, they were more able to learn. They were more able to do their job. It seems like a lot of kids during COVID, they Uh sort of like kind of lost some social skills you know, having to do school online. So it seems like learning to kind of reorient themselves to being around other people yes. and how to concentrate in the classroom, that, that seems like that's a, something that a lot of parents and teachers are dealing with right now. Yeah, I think it's been a big stress since COVID. And I think this is the time that we need to focus on giving them those skills because the earlier we give people those skills, then they can apply them during their whole lifespan. Right. Mindfulness is a very simple concept, being there for the moments of your life, but it's hard to do. It's not easy. And that's why it's important to practice it and to figure out what are your cues during the day that can help you remember to be present for whatever it is that you're doing, whether it be your your cup of coffee when you're relaxing and you think to yourself, I want to be there with my kids at breakfast. So whatever that cue is that works for you in your life, you need to utilize it because it's worth it. So is there anything else about mindfulness in general that you would like people to know about and how they can kind of apply it in their everyday lives? Breathing exercises are really a way for people to start with practicing mindfulness because we're all breathing all day long. And if we can use our breath to help us calm down, that then is a strategy that we always have available to us. So many things that are just simple techniques that we all have at our disposal and are free Mm -hmm. for us to use. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for your work, Marianne. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you for having me. So now, what would happen if we paired mindfulness with a different but very similar concept, kindness? The two go hand in hand after all. Could there potentially be even more psychological benefits? It turns out Ohio State's Dr. Jennifer Chevins studies just that. She's interested in the treatment of mood and personality disorders. In addition, she's also interested in human strengths and flourishing. Our Jeff Grabmeyer talks with Dr. Chevins about the power of kindness, the ability of hope to improve lives, and how mindfulness is closely linked to it all. 
Dr. Chevins, when people think of psychology, often what comes to mind is psychological problems, such as depression and mental illness. But one of your strands of research is just the opposite, which you call on your website human strengths and flourishings. What led you to study this positive side of psychology? Yeah, well, I have, as you mentioned, multiple strands of research. So I also studied depression and personality disorders and things like that. And as I was conducting that research, I kept coming across people who had had similar kinds of life stressors or similar kinds of circumstances who were really resilient to the stresses that they had experienced to date. And so I started to wonder what it is that makes those people be able to respond in that way. And really, when I started thinking about, are there things we can learn from folks who are responding in a resilient way to stressors that could be helpful for people who are experiencing various forms of psychopathology? Why do you think it's important to study human strengths and flourishing? Well, I think we all have human strengths. We all have various things that help us bounce back from things that are tough or help attenuate or lessen the impact of things that are tough for us. And so thinking about strengths and flourishing is something that impacts all of us. And oftentimes we don't think about that. We don't think about do we have resources available to us that we might be able to use in certain ways or are there things that we can do that are already available that come pretty naturally to us that we might be able to incorporate into what we're doing in our day-to-day lives? One aspect of positive psychology that you have studied is hope, in particular hope therapy. Can you explain what that is and what it can do for people? Sure. Well, let me start by defining hope because we define it in a way that probably most people would say, that's not hope. So uh, when we talk about hope, we're really thinking about a positive future-oriented way of thinking. You're thinking about the future in a way that's hopeful, right? We hope for various things. So there's three components to our definition of hope. The first is goals. It's what you want in the future. And then the second is pathways. And when we talk about pathways, we're talking about what links you in your current moment to the goal, to the thing that you want in the future? What's the route that you're gonna use to get there? And then the third component is agency, which is basically the motivation or the belief that you can get to your goals. So can you use those pathways? Can you figure out ways when you get stuck to move around obstacles and get to those goals? When I was in graduate school, we were studying hope and finding all kinds of benefits of hope. And I started to have the thought of, are people who have lower hope, are they just out of luck? Are they just not likely to get all of these good things that these higher hope people are getting in their lives? And so I worked um, to develop hope therapy, which is basically an intervention to teach people the skills of hope. So teach people how to set goals that are likely to be accomplished, how to develop pathways that they can use to reach their goals, and then how to work up the energy or the motivation, the belief that they can get to their goals. Does hope therapy work from what you found? Hope therapy uh, does work, right? It's uh, Does it work is kind of a big question, but we found that anywhere from eight weeks of hope therapy, which was the original study, down to I have colleagues doing a 45-minute hope therapy intervention, and we've done a 15-minute pathways intervention that shows people are more likely to reach their goals when they have higher hope and that these interventions can increase people's hope. You and your former PhD student, uh, David Craig, made a big splash last year with another study of positive psychology, this one involving kindness. Let's talk about that study for a minute. 
you found that people suffering from symptoms of depression or anxiety may help heal themselves by doing good deeds for others. Tell me a little bit about that study. What we did was we assigned people to one of three groups. They were either asked to do acts of kindness a couple times a week, a few acts of kindness at a time, or to complete what we call thought records in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is writing down the negative thoughts you have and then looking at evidence to challenge those thoughts. Or they were assigned to a group of doing pleasant activities, which is another intervention we would do in cognitive therapy. So. They were either in the acts of kindness, the thought records, or the pleasant activities group. And we had them in the intervention for five weeks. Then we followed them for another five weeks after that. And we measured their symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress, and looked at how those interventions impacted the trajectory of those symptoms. What did you find? Did the mm-hmm. Which of the three seemed to work best? I think there's several good news pieces from what we found. The first is that all three of the interventions did result in decreases in symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress over time. So that's the good news. We also found that folks in the acts of kindness group had some of the biggest decreases in their symptoms of uh, depression, anxiety, and stress, and that they had changes when they performed acts of kindness, they became less self-conscious about themselves and interacting with other people. And then to the degree they became less self-conscious, they became less depressed, anxious, and stressed. Wow. So these acts of kindness, do they have to be big acts of kindness to, to be effective? They did not have to be big acts of kindness. We're actually working right now to go through and look at what it is people said they did from reading over the responses, some of the things people did were smile at people when they saw them on campus or around town or hold doors open for people, things that many of us are doing in our day-to-day life anyway, but with a focus on doing them on purpose and in a planned way. I think one thing that people worry about, you know, if they have a, a friend or family member who's depressed is that asking them to do something for you to help you out in some ways is going to be a burden for them because they're already dealing with depression and and this is going to be just make things more difficult for them. But that doesn't seem to be true, right, from what you found. Right. I was worried about that when we started this study and said, you know, these folks are feeling stressed, they're feeling pulled thin, they're experiencing anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms. It feels like a lot to ask them to do things for other people in that context. We did not find that it was problematic for them at all. There was no evidence that the folks that were more depressed or more anxious didn't do as well in the acts of kindness group. And my guess in thinking through it and thinking through what we might want to do going forward is there's some real competence that comes in doing kind things for other people. There's something that helps you feel like you're making a contribution. Um, So as opposed to being a burden, it allows for this opportunity for people to contribute both to their social groups at large in their kind of environmental way, people you may not even know, but also to the people that you're closest to. So you you note in the study that being kind isn't going to replace uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for people with depression. So shouldn't people who are depressed just get therapy? Yeah. Well, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so I would never uh, not recommend that people who feel like they could benefit from therapy get therapy. And we do have a huge evidence base on cognitive behavioral therapy for depression and anxiety, and I think that's a great option for folks. Currently, 
it can be tough to get therapy. We are at a place uh, right now where folks are often on long wait lists, have a hard time finding therapists that take their insurance or that have openings for them. And so one of the things I find heartening about this study is this is a pretty low level, uh, low cost way of engaging with your world around you that might help your depression and anxiety symptoms. And then if you are still feeling like you might need therapy, I would by all means suggest that uh, you try to find somebody to do that with. Another aspect of positive psychology that people talk about a lot is is mindfulness. I wonder if mindfulness has uh, any connection to the work that you do. I think mindfulness has um, really strong connections to the work I'm doing and probably to a much broader array of things even. There's two ways that I think about mindfulness. One is a mindfulness practice where I'm going to sit down, maybe count my breath or think about a chosen focus that I have and really engage in that practice. The other way to think about mindfulness is being in the present moment wherever you are. And so in that way, I think of mindfulness as kind of a supercharger or booster to any of the interventions we're talking about. So if you're working on being more hopeful, really bringing your full attention to your goals in this moment and how those goals align with your values, I think can help the hope be even more powerful. If you're being mindful while you're being kind, so if I'm holding the door open for people and really staying in that moment, not thinking like, look at me holding the door and I'm doing a great job, but thinking, you know, I see this person, I see this other person's humanity, I'm, you know, here with them in this moment, I think that can supercharge your kindness. And same with gratitude, right? If we're doing three good things, I'm looking throughout my day for good things that are happening and I'm really paying attention to them as they're happening, that's gonna bring me in that moment. Being mindfully grateful, um, I imagine, is probably more useful than uh, being mindlessly grateful. Thank you, Dr. Chevins. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. So if you're somewhere that allows you to do so, like not driving or operating heavy machinery, take a moment with us. Close your eyes, breathe deeply. Focus on what you can feel, what you can hear. Think of something positive. Take this opportunity to focus on the right here, right now. Now slowly, thoughtfully open your eyes. See, doesn't that feel just a little bit better? Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Jacob Carroza. Thanks for listening.